The Moonstone, Part 16. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. Chapter 16. We found my lady with no light in the room but the reading lamp. The shade was screwed down so as to overshadow her face. Instead of looking up at us in her usual straightforward way, she sat close at the table and kept her eyes fixed obstinately on an open book. "'Officer,' she said, "'is it important to the inquiry you are conducting to know beforehand if any person now in this house wishes to leave it?' "'Most important, my lady.' "'I have to tell you, then, that Miss Verinder proposes to stay with her aunt, Mrs. Applewhite, of Frizinghall. She has arranged to leave us the first thing to-morrow morning.' Sergeant Cuff looked at me. I made a step forward as to speak to my mistress, and, feeling my heart fail me, if I must own it, took a step back again, and said nothing. "'May I ask your ladyship when Miss Verinder informed you that she was going to her aunt's?' inquired the sergeant. "'About an hour since,' answered my mistress. Sergeant Cuff looked at me once more. They say old people's hearts are not very easily moved. My heart couldn't have thumped much harder than it did now, if I had been five-and-twenty again. "'I have no claim, my lady,' says the sergeant, "'to control Miss Verinder's actions. "'All I can ask you to do is to put off her departure, if possible, "'till later in the day. "'I must go to Frizinghall myself to-morrow morning, "'and I shall be back by two o'clock, if not before. "'If Miss Verinder can be kept here till that time, "'I should wish to say two words to her unexpectedly before she goes.' "'My lady directed me to give the coachman her orders, "'that the carriage was not to come for Miss Rachel until two o'clock. "'Have you more to say?' she asked of the sergeant, when this had been done. "'Only one more thing, your ladyship. If Miss Verinder is surprised at this change in the arrangements, please not to mention me as being the cause of putting off her journey.' My mistress lifted her head suddenly from her book, as if she was going to say something, checked herself by a great effort, and, looking back again at the open page, dismissed us with a sign of her hand. "'That's a wonderful woman,' said Sergeant Cuff, when we were out in the hall again. "'But for her self-control—' The mystery that puzzles you, Mr. Betteredge, would have been at an end to-night. At those words the truth rushed at last into my stupid old head. For a moment, I suppose, I must have gone clear out of my senses. I seized the sergeant by the collar of his coat and pinned him against the wall. "'Damn you!' I cried. "'There's something wrong about Miss Rachel, and you have been hiding it from me all the time.' Sergeant Cuff looked up at me, flat against the wall, without stirring a hand or moving a muscle of his melancholy face. Ah he said, you've guessed it at last. My hand dropped from his collar, and my head sunk on my breast. Please to remember, as some excuse for my breaking out as I did, that I had served the family for fifty years. Miss Rachel had climbed upon my knees and pulled my whiskers many and many a time when she was a child. Miss Rachel, with all her faults, had been, to my mind, the dearest and prettiest and best young mistress that ever an old servant waited on and loved. I beg Sergeant Cuff's pardon, but I am afraid I did it with watery eyes, and not in a very becoming way. "'Don't distress yourself, Mr. Betteredge,' says the sergeant, with more kindness than I had any right to expect from him. "'In my line of life, if we were quick at taking offence, we wouldn't be worth salt to our porridge. If it's any comfort to you, collar me again. You don't in the least know how to do it. But I'll overlook your awkwardness in consideration of your feelings.' He curled up at the corners of his lips, and in his own dreary way, seemed to think he had delivered himself of a very good joke. I led him into my own little sitting-room and closed the door. 
"'Tell me the truth, Sergeant,' I said. "'What do you suspect? "'It's no kindness to hide it from me now.' "'I don't suspect,' said Sergeant Cuff. "'I know.' My unlucky temper began to get the better of me again. "'Do you mean to tell me, in plain English,' I said, "'that Miss Rachel has stolen her own diamond?' "'Yes,' says the Sergeant. "'That is what I mean to tell you, in so many words.' Miss Verinder has been in secret possession of the Moonstone from first to last, and she has taken Rosanna Spearman into her confidence, because she has calculated on our suspecting Rosanna Spearman of the theft. There is the whole case in a nutshell. Collar me again, Mr. Betteridge. If it's any vent to your feelings, collar me again. God help me. My feelings were not to be relieved in that way. Give me your reasons. That was all I could say to him. You shall hear my reasons to-morrow, said the sergeant. If Miss Verinder refuses to put off her visit to her aunt, which you will find Miss Verinder will do, I shall be obliged to lay the whole case before your mistress to-morrow, and, as I don't know what may come of it, I shall request you to be present, and to hear what passes on both sides. Let the matter rest for to-night. No, Mr. Betteredge, you don't get a word more on the subject of the moonstone out of me. There is your table spread for supper. That's one of the many human infirmities which I always treat tenderly. If you will ring the bell, I'll say grace.' "'For what we are about to receive—' "'I wish you a good appetite to it, Sergeant,' I said. "'My appetite is gone. "'I'll wait and see you served, "'and then I'll ask you to excuse me if I go away, "'and try to get the better of this by myself.' "'I saw him served with the best of everything, "'and I shouldn't have been sorry "'if the best of everything had choked him. "'The head gardener, Mr. Begbie, "'came in at that time with his weekly account. "'The sergeant got on the subject of roses "'and the merits of grass-walks and gravel-walks immediately.' I left the two together, and went out with a heavy heart. This was the first trouble I remember for many a long year, which wasn't to be blown off by a whiff of tobacco, and which was even beyond the reach of Robinson Crusoe. Being restless and miserable, and having no particular room to go to, I took a turn on the terrace, and thought it over in peace and quietness by myself. It doesn't much matter what my thoughts were. I felt wretchedly old and worn out, and unfit for my place and began to wonder, for the first time in my life, when it would please God to take me. With all this I held firm, notwithstanding, to my belief in Miss Rachel. If Sergeant Cuff had been Solomon in all his glory, and had told me that my young lady had mixed herself up in a mean and guilty plot, I should have had but one answer for Solomon, wise as he was. You don't know her, and I do. My meditations were interrupted by Samuel. He brought me a written message from my mistress. Going into the house to get a light to read it by, Samuel remarked that there seemed a change coming in the weather. My troubled mind had prevented me from noticing it before, but now my attention was roused. I heard the dogs uneasy and the wind moaning low. Looking up at the sky, I saw the rack of clouds getting blacker and blacker and hurrying faster and faster over a watery moon. Wild weather coming. Samuel was right. Wild weather coming. The message from my lady informed me that the magistrate at Frizinghall had written to remind her about the three Indians. Early in the coming week the rogues must needs be released, and left free to follow their own devices. If we had any more questions to ask them, there was no time to lose. Having forgotten to mention this, when she had last seen Sergeant Cuff, my mistress now desired me to supply the omission. The Indians had gone clean out of my head, as they have, no doubt, gone clean out of yours. I didn't see much use in stirring that subject again. However, I obeyed my orders on the spot, as a matter of course. I found Sergeant Cuff and the gardener, with a bottle of Scotch whisky between them, head over ears in an argument on the growing of roses. 
The sergeant was so deeply interested that he held up his hand and signed to me not to interrupt the discussion when I came in. As far as I could understand it, the question between them was whether the white moss rose did or did not require to be budded on the dog roads to make it grow well. Mr. Begbie said yes, and Sergeant Cuff said no. They appealed to me as hotly as a couple of boys. Knowing nothing whatever about the growing of roses, I steered a middle course, just as Her Majesty's judges do, when the scales of justice bother them by hanging even to a hair. Gentlemen, I remarked, there is much to be said on both sides. In the temporary lull produced by that impartial sentence, I laid my lady's written message on the table, under the eyes of Sergeant Cuff. I had got by this time, as nearly as might be, to hate the sergeant, but truth compels me to acknowledge that, in respect of readiness of mine, he was a wonderful man. In half a minute after he had read the message, he had looked back into his memory for Superintendent Seagrave's report, had picked out that part of it in which the Indians were concerned, and was ready with his answer. A certain great traveller, who understood the Indians and their language, had figured in Mr. Seagrave's report, hadn't he? Very well. Did I know the gentleman's name and address? Very well again. Would I write them on the back of my lady's message? Much obliged to me. Sergeant Cuff would look that gentleman up when he went to Frizzing Hall in the morning. Do you expect anything to come of it? I asked. Superintendent Seagrave found the Indians as innocent as the babe unborn. Superintendent Seagrave has been proved wrong up to this time in all his conclusions, answered the sergeant. It may be worthwhile to find out to-morrow whether Superintendent Seagrave was wrong about the Indians as well. With that he turned to Mr. Begbie, and took up the argument again, exactly at the place where it had left off. This question between us is a question of soils and seasons, and patience and pains, Mr. Gardiner. Now let me put it to you from another point of view. You take your white moss rose. By that time I had closed the door on them, and was out of hearing of the rest of the dispute. In the passage I met Penelope hanging about, and asked what she was waiting for. She was waiting for her young lady's bell, when her young lady chose to call her back to go on with the packing for the next day's journey. Further inquiry revealed to me that Miss Rachel had given it as a reason for wanting to go to her aunt in Frizzing Hall that the house was unendurable to her, that she could bear the odious presence of a policeman under the same roof with herself no longer. On being informed half an hour since that her departure would be delayed until two in the afternoon, she had flown into a violent passion. My lady, present at the time, had severely rebuked her, and then, having apparently something to say which was reserved for her daughter's private ear, had sent Penelope out of the room. My girl was in wretchedly low spirits about the changed state of things in the house. "'Nothing goes right, father. Nothing is like what it used to be. I feel as if some dreadful misfortune was hanging over us all.' That was my feeling, too. But I put a good face on it before my daughter. Miss Rachel's bell rang while we were talking. Penelope ran up the back stairs to go on with the packing. I went by the other way to the hall, to see what the glass said about the change in the weather. Just as I approached the swing door leading into the hall from the servants' offices, it was violently opened from the other side, and Rosanna Spearman ran by me with a miserable look of pain in her face, and one of her hands pressed hard over her heart, as if the pang was in that quarter. "'What's the matter, my girl?' I asked, stopping her. "'Are you ill?' "'For God's sake, don't speak to me!' she answered, and twisted herself out of my hands, and ran on towards the servant's staircase. I called to the cook, who was within hearing, to look after the poor girl. Two other persons proved to be within hearing, as well as the cook. Sergeant Cuff darted softly out of my room, and asked what was the matter. I answered, nothing. 
Mr. Franklin, on the other side, pulled open the swing door, and beckoning me into the hall, inquired if I had seen anything of Rosanna Spearman. "'She has just passed me, sir, with a very disturbed face, and in a very odd manner.' "'I am afraid I am innocently the cause of that disturbance, Betteredge.' "'You, sir? I can't explain it,' says Mr. Franklin. "'But, if the girl is concerned in the loss of the diamond, I do really believe she was on the point of confessing everything to me, of all the people in the world, not two minutes since.' Looking towards the swing door as he said those last words, I fancied I saw it opened a little way from the inner side. Was there anybody listening? The door fell to before I could get to it. Looking through the moment after, I thought I saw the tails of Sergeant Cuff's respectable black coat disappearing round the corner of the passage. He knew, as well as I did, that he could expect no more help from me, now that I had discovered the turn in which his investigations were really taking. Under those circumstances it was quite in his character to help himself, and to do it by the underground way. Not feeling sure that I had really seen the sergeant, and not desiring to make needless mischief where, heaven knows, there was mischief enough already going on, I told Mr. Franklin that I thought one of the dogs had got into the house, and then begged him to describe what had happened between Rosanna and himself. "'Were you passing through the hall, sir?' I asked. "'Did you meet her accidentally when she spoke to you?' Mr. Franklin pointed to the billiard-table. "'I was knocking the balls about,' he said, "'and trying to get this miserable business of the diamond out of my mind. I happened to look up, and there stood Rosanna Spearman at the side of me, like a ghost. Her stealing on me in that way was so strange that I hardly knew what to do at first. Seeing a very anxious expression in her face, I asked her if she wished to speak to me. She answered, yes, if I dare. Knowing what suspicion attached to her, I could only put one construction on such language as that. I confess it made me uncomfortable. I had no wish to invite the girl's confidence. At the same time, in the difficulties that now beset us, I could hardly feel justified in refusing to listen to her, if she was really bent on speaking to me. It was an awkward position, and I dare say I got out of it awkwardly enough. I said to her, I don't quite understand you. Is there anything you want me to do? Mind, Betteredge, I didn't speak unkindly. The poor girl can't help being ugly. I felt that at the time. The cue was still in my hand, and I went on knocking the balls about to take off the awkwardness of the thing. As it turned out, I only made matters worse still. I'm afraid I mortified her without meaning it. She suddenly turned away. He looks at the billiard-balls, I heard her say, anything rather than look at me. Before I could stop her, she had left the hall. I am not quite easy about it, Betteredge. Would you mind telling Rosanna that I meant no unkindness? I have been a little hard on her, perhaps, in my own thoughts. I have almost hoped that the loss of the diamond might be traced to her. Not from any ill-will to the poor girl, but— he stopped there, and going back to the billiard-table, began to knock the balls about once more. After what had passed between the sergeant and me, I knew what it was that he had left unspoken, as well as he knew it himself. Nothing but the tracing of the moonstone to our second housemaid could now raise Miss Rachel above the infamous suspicion that rested on her in the mind of Sergeant Cuff. It was no longer a question of quieting my young lady's nervous excitement. It was a question of proving her innocence. If Rosanna had done nothing to compromise herself, the hope which Mr. Franklin confessed to having felt would have been hard enough on her in all conscience. But this was not the case. She had pretended to be ill, and had gone secretly to Frizinghall. She had been up all night, making something or destroying something, in private. And she had been at the shivering sand that evening, under circumstances which were highly suspicious, to say the least of them. For all these reasons, sorry as I was for Rosanna, I could not but think that Mr. Franklin's way of looking at the matter 
was neither unnatural nor unreasonable in Mr. Franklin's position. I said a word to him to that effect. "'Yes, yes,' he said in return, "'but there is just a chance, a very poor one, certainly, that Rosanna's conduct may admit of some explanation which we don't see at present. I hate hurting a woman's feelings, better edge. Tell the poor creature what I told you to tell her, and if she wants to speak to me, I don't care whether I get into a scrape or not, send her to me in the library.' With those kind words he laid down the cue and left me. Inquiry at the servants' offices informed me that Rosanna had retired to her own room. She had declined all offers of assistance with thanks, and had only asked to be left to rest in quiet. Here, therefore, was an end of any confession on her part, supposing she really had a confession to make, for that night. I reported the result to Mr. Franklin, who thereupon left the library and went up to bed. I was putting the lights out and making the windows fast when Samuel came in with news of the two guests whom I had left in my room. The argument about the white moss rose had apparently come to an end at last. The gardener had gone home, and Sergeant Cuff was nowhere to be found in the lower regions of the house. I looked into my room. Quite true, nothing was to be discovered there but a couple of empty tumblers and a strong smell of hot grog. Had the sergeant gone of his own accord to the bedchamber that was prepared for him? I went upstairs to see. After reaching the second landing, I thought I heard a sound of quiet and regular breathing on my left-hand side. My left-hand side led to the corridor which communicated with Miss Rachel's room. I looked in, and there, coiled up on three chairs placed right across the passage there, with a red handkerchief tied round his grizzled head and his respectable black coat rolled up for a pillow, lay and slept Sergeant Cuff. He woke instantly and quietly, like a dog, the moment I approached him. "'Good night, Mr. Betteredge,' he said. And mind, if you ever take to growing roses, the white moss rose is all the better for not being budded on the dog rose, whatever the gardener may say to the contrary. What are you doing here? I asked. Why are you not in your proper bed? I am not in my proper bed, answered the sergeant, because I am one of the many people in this miserable world who can't earn their money honestly and easily at the same time. There was a coincidence this evening, between the period of Rosanna Spearman's return from the sands and the period when Miss Verinder stated her resolution to leave the house. Whatever Rosanna may have hidden, it's clear to my mind that your young lady couldn't go away until she knew it was hidden. The two must have communicated privately once already to-night. If they try to communicate again, when the house is quiet, I want to be in their way and stop it. Don't blame me for upsetting your sleeping arrangements, Mr. Betteredge. Blame the diamond. I wish to God the diamond had never found its way into this house, I broke out. Sergeant Cuff looked with a rueful face at the three chairs on which he had condemned himself to pass the night. "'So do I,' he said gravely. End of chapter 16